DJ, PK, and Andy Bailey joining us now. Covers the Jazz for Forbes.com, the NBA for Bleacher Report. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. All right, before we get to what happens in Orlando, Andy, I'm curious what level of confidence you have that Orlando is going to happen. I know there's still some people out there with doubts and questions, but I'm seeing these positive tests uh, for players who have been spread out all over the map, different parts of the U.S. Some of them have tested positive while they've been living overseas. And I'm thinking, how can it be dangerous, more dangerous in a bubble, even a less than perfect bubble? How can it be more dangerous than it is in some of these communities around the world? You buying that? I yeah, I think the answer to your question is um, <laughs> there's no way to know, and and I, I think you're on the right track with that question. Um, several weeks ago, the league and I, it came through Wojnarowski, I think, but the league uh, told players essentially we have to be prepared for what happens when, when guys test positive, which they will inevitably do, and now we've seen that bear out. Um, and we have to be willing to sort of push through that. And one thing I thought with the last few days, and we keep seeing names of guys testing positive, Jokic, DeAndre Jordan, Spencer Dinwiddie, I, I'm sure I'm you know missing a bunch. I think Buddy Heald was one. Um, and even as all those names get reported, you're not hearing anything from the league saying, um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna change the plan, back up, whatever. I think Adam Silver has said at least once or twice that if there's you know some kind of mass outbreak, they might have to stop. Um, but I I think the NBA is playing this as safe and smart as they can. Um, I hate to be the kind of person who would downplay what's going on. I actually just found out that my cousin and my aunt tested positive, which is pretty scary stuff. Um, but if if there is a group of people in the world who are um, physically equipped to deal with this virus, it's NBA players. And I know that they travel with coaches who are in the at-risk group um, or other members of the organization who may be in the at-risk group. Um, but I think all the precautions that the league has taken in, in setting up this restart, um, they've, to me they've gone above and beyond, and I, I think they're going to be as safe as they possibly can. Um, and I expect things to, to push through as planned. So we've seen the uh, NBA players over the years be involved in social causes, whether it be hoodies or T-shirts and whatnot, and they've sort of done it on their own. Now the league is going to be a little more to the forefront. You know, we've heard about painting Black Lives Matter on the basketball courts and all that. How much do you think when we get down there, Will this be a part of the everyday questioning as opposed to if you broke it down percentages versus the actual basketball? That's a good question. Um, and, and just having that on the floor will certainly have it at the forefront of the conversation daily. Um, I, I think we can probably look to the schedule release that was on ESPN as sort of um, – a template for how things may be down in Orlando. There was there was mostly basketball talk on that show, but they did reserve some time to talk about uh, the political and, and social issues that they wanted to talk about, and I anticipate it will be the same way on the restart. Um, and I think it, it may be more at the forefront at the start, um, just when they're, they're kind of establishing what's going to be going on. I, I think they'll probably talk about it a little bit more then. But I, I would anticipate that the majority of the time will be spent on basketball, just as it was on that ESPN schedule release show. 
Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I hesitate to break it down by percentage or whatever, but it, it will be a daily thing because it's on the floor. It's potentially going to be on a bunch of players' jerseys. Um, but I, I think by the end of the time there in Orlando, the focus will be squarely on basketball. Have the Lakers and Clippers separated from the West? Is there anything about this break that makes you think uh, they are more or less vulnerable to the next four or five teams in the West, depending on what you think of Dallas and their level of playoff experience? Maybe you dismiss them, but certainly the other four, how good a shot do they have to wreck an, uh, a Clipper-Laker conference final? I feel about the same uh, about those two teams as I did around the time of, of, of the shutdown. Um, I think they're clearly the two favorites. But having said that, I would not be shocked if a number of teams in the West upset them. Um, I think you broke it down perfectly. Dallas is sort of on the fringe. I, I think with their lack of playoff experience, it's fair to question what they're going to look like um, in these this eight-game slate plus the playoffs. But they have an historically great offensive player and an historically great offense. And so I would not be surprised to see them get super hot in a series and upset somebody. Um, they can just they can put up points in bunches, and, and if you do that four out of seven games, you advance. Um, you know, the Rockets have a ton of star power at the top of their roster, obviously, with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. And Harden is one of those guys who's been sort of on the offseason muscle watch during this uh, shutdown. He's lost a bunch of weight, and that, that could be an indication of increased focus from him. Um, I think that the Nuggets are going to be a problem. Jokic is another guy who slimmed down. I'm, I'm actually really curious to see how he plays because I think there were some ways that the weight helped him. So he's going to be a fascinating watch for me. Um, the Jazz, I, I, I kind of pushed them maybe back to the Mavericks tier now because I think the loss of Bogdanovich is huge. Um, what he did to space the floor for Mitchell and Gobert, uh, who, who do a lot of their damage inside the three-point line, was huge. And, and not only that, um, it hurts their depth, of course, to not have him in the lineup. Now you've got to bump somebody up to get more minutes. Um, so I'm very concerned about what their rotation might look like without Bogdanovich. But this is my very long-winded way of saying that the Clippers and Lakers are, are the two favorites in the West, and I hesitate to pick which one I'd say is the favorite. Um, but there are a bunch of teams over there that, that would not surprise me to see an upset. As far as the Jazz perspective, I believe it's got to start with Conley. He's got to up his game, and I believe he's very capable. And if he ups his game, then that makes it easier for guys like Ingles, Clarkson, Yang, Moutier to up their games. But if Conley doesn't up their up his game, then it puts the pressure on those other guys. So react to what I just said there. That's an excellent point. I mean, if Conley from 2018-19 uh, coming out of this, shut down, that, that could right there neutralize the loss of Bogdanovich, at least in a lot of ways and at least offensively. I think you're naturally going to have problems with a Tommy Mitchell backcourt defensively just because of their size. And Mitchell is obviously a, a fantastic athlete. He's got good wingspan uh, for a player of his height, so he can cover twos, I think, fairly effectively. But they're going to come up against some big wings, um, and that can cause problems for them defensively. But I think you're right on the money. If, if Mike Conley, maybe he's more acclimated to the system now over the last few months. Maybe he, he's more figured out his role. It seemed like he was kind of on that path just before the, the league shut down anyway. Um, so I think he can make up a lot of the ground that that, that they lost uh, when Bogdanovich went down with the wrist surgery. But I, I still have some concerns about the defense. 
When I look at Conley's numbers for uh, October and November, which is about a 20-game sample, he's like 14 points a game, and he's shooting probably about 35% from three. Uh, both those numbers well off what he had been doing in Memphis that you know made him Mike Conley and got him that big deal. But then I look at the the numbers that he put up in February and March, which is about a 13-game sample, and he's at 16.5 points a game, and he's shooting 45% from three. And I'm thinking, that guy, February, March Conley, if that's the guy who shows up in Orlando, well, getting more possessions because Bogdanovich isn't there to take a bunch of shots, so those shots will get split up, and some will go to Conley, and some will obviously uh, go to Joe Ingles, and some are sure to go to Donovan Mitchell. But Conley at 20 points a game doesn't seem like a stretch at all if they get February and March Mike Conley. Yeah, that's a dynamic offensive player. Um, and, and I think part of the reason he struggled to figure out his new role in Utah is he was getting fewer shots than he got in Memphis, and it was less usage, less controlling of the ball. And so maybe Bogdanovich's absence in some way uh, you know, helps him recapture what he's doing in Memphis. And that, that helps them offensively, I, I think, a great deal. And now you've got three guys who can create for themselves and others, and Conley, Mitchell, and Ingles, uh, I, I would assume that's probably the starting the, – the, all three of those guys will start with, with uh, Bogdanovich out. Um, so you've got playmaking coming from a bunch of different angles. You've got a couple guys who should you know, conceivably be able to hit Gobert on lobs and Conley and Ingles. Um, so I, I think offensively there's a chance for a lot of dynamic play you know, if Conley is that guy that you mentioned from, from February, February and March, if he comes back and, you know, it takes him a while to get going like it did at the start of the season, uh, then Utah could be in trouble pretty early. Another reason why I think that they can be a little bit better than people might be expecting, and I don't discount uh, Bogey's loss and how critical he was to the team because he was an excellent player and he's very fun to watch, is that they've known about this for a long time. It's not like it occurred during the season when games are coming at you fast and furious and there's not a lot of time to adjust you just got to go and you're basically you're making your adjustments on the fly here they will have have weeks literally that they've known about it and then they can have a couple of weeks before they actually have to play games in which they're practicing how much do you think that can mitigate this man's loss that's an excellent point, too. Um, you know, Quinn Snyder, I think, over the last few years has demonstrated that he's one of the better coaches in the league at, at making adjustments and adapting to the personnel that he has. Um, you know, I remember when he was first hired, a lot of the talk was, you know, the Jazz got this offensive genius. He's written manifestos about the pick and roll. Um, it's going to be offense, offense, offense. And then I think we got a feel for the roster he had and the fact that his best player was this defensive juggernaut in Rudy Gobert, and it became a very defense-first team. Um, so I think given weeks and weeks to prepare for this, as you just mentioned, I, I think will help. Um, it's, it's really going to fall largely on the shoulders of guys who have to fill in um, Bogdanovich's minutes and, and shot allocation. And you've mentioned a lot of them already. A lot of that offensive responsibility is going to go to Conley. Some of it will go to Mitchell. Um, but guys further down the bench who are now going to be thrust into slightly bigger roles, like George Niang, um, you know, Royce O'Neal might need to take a few more shots. He's always been a very, very low usage player. Maybe they can convince him to take another shot here or there. Maybe he can t- attack off the dribble now and then. Um, you know, it, it's going to take a team effort to replace that guy. I mean, it's it's not easy to replace 20 points per game and, and 40, whatever he was shooting from three, 41, 42%. Uh, 
Um, that's a big loss. But like you said, they've had time to adjust to it. They've conceivably, they've, they've got a guy in Conley who, if he can get back to his old self, can help too. Um, you know, I think there's a chance they make up for it. It's, it's just, it is a big loss. And so it's going to be something to pay attention to. DJ PK and Andy Bailey join us. He covers the Utah Jazz for Forbes.com and the NBA for Bleacher Report. Are you one of those people who's going to be watching Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert's body language and how they interact? Are you completely over that and don't care? I think I'll probably pay some attention to it in the first game or two. Um, you know, and if it doesn't look like there's any indication that there's a problem, then then that's that'd be it in in my mind. I, Utah has come on, I think, a couple times and said things are fine. Um, they'll be able to play together, and I think the players have both said that when it comes to winning, we're going to be on the same page. And so, if they look, you know, like their old normal selves in the first couple games, I think it's fine to put that to bed. Everybody wants to win a title, and that's the whole point. That's what you're striving for. Uh, long-term pitcher, what do you think the Jazz need? I, I think they need a superstar leap from Donovan Mitchell. Um, I still think, you know, I, th- this was thrown around a lot in his rookie year, and it's cooled off a little bit the last couple years, but there were Dwayne Wade comparisons, there were Damian Lillard comparisons. I think I might have even gone as far as to say he could be a Dwayne Wade-Damian Lillard hybrid, which just, you know, that's very, very lofty. But I still think that potential is there uh, for him. I, I think if he becomes slightly more efficient as a scorer, I think this season he's actually above average um, in terms of true shooting percentage for the first time in his career. And he's, he's slowly been trending that direction over the course of his career. So if he gets a little bit more efficient, I think if he improves his playmaking a little bit, I, I think he's a guy who has the ability to average six or seven assists a game. And I think he will command the type, the type of attention that, that makes other guys open. Um, so I think if he can reach his potential, which to me is still like a top five to ten player in the league, Utah is in the title picture. Um, you know, I already think Rudy Gobert is better than people realize. I think he's, in terms of impact, probably a top ten to fifteen player in the NBA. And so if Donovan Mitchell joins him in that tier, then then you've got two top fifteen guys, and that's kind of the foundation for championship teams here uh, for the last several years. You've got to have. Um, at least a couple of those guys. I mean, there are those rare examples, like the 2011 Mavericks who did it with just Dirk. Um, there's the 2004 Pistons who, who were, you know, very, very team first. But I think Utah has a chance um, with Mitchell and Gobert to have two top 15 guys, and that's, that's a title contender right there. So when you talk about getting more efficient, does Mitchell have to pretty much double his trips to the free throw line? Free throw line is huge. Um, you're, you're right on track there. I think he's got to... I wouldn't say completely shy away from the mid-range shots because I think he's a lot better in that range than most people are in the NBA. Um, and if you can exploit that part of the floor where defenses maybe aren't paying as much attention as they used to just because you know fewer guys shoot, that's, that's a good shot for Donovan Mitchell. But there are times, I think, when he pulls up too quickly and, and he could get all the way to the rim and draw some contact. Um, the most efficient way to score in basketball is a trip to the free-throw line. And so if he can increase those, that certainly increases his efficiency. Um, I think he has the potential to be a guy who shoots high 30s, you know, low 40s from three, too. I, I don't know if that's an every season type of a thing for him, but I do think he has that potential to be to be that sort of a consistent three-point shooter. Um, so if you up the three-point percentage a point or two, you get to the free throw line, like you said, I, I think a lot more times 
Um, he's suddenly a much, much more efficient scorer. And I, I do think playmaking is huge for him, too. Um, assists, I, I think, get everybody else on the team going. Um, like I said earlier, he draws a lot of attention on defense, so there are guys who are open sometimes and he's going to the rim and you think, well, there's Gobert for a drop-off or there's Ingles for a kick-out. Um, and he doesn't always find it. And sometimes that's fine. I mean, sometimes he'll score, sometimes he'll get a trip to the line. But, but I think moving the ball just a little bit more would probably help him too. Do you think that the fact that there are no fans would actually favor the uh, statistically or the odds on favorite as far as the better teams? Because a lot of teams, you know, they draw the emotion from the fan base and maybe that pumps them up if they're an underdog. And obviously that'll be wiped out. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting uh, to pay attention to and I think impossible to predict just because we've never seen it. Um, we've, we've literally never had NBA – I can't think of a time, but this has got to be the first time in NBA history that we've had regular season games without fans. Um, and I think, yeah, there, there are a lot of times that underdogs draw on the spirit of the fans and that, that might push them to upsets here and there. And so I, I think you may be onto something that maybe – this is our best uh, way to determine which team has the most talent and, and which team is the most driven. Um, because I, I think there is something to being able to feed off the crowd uh, and the emotional push that they can give you. So now it's, it's down to just talent and intrinsic motivation um, for a lot of these players. So it'll be really interesting to see how certain teams react to that, um, You know whether or not the lack of home court advantage throws things off. I don't, I don't, thinking about it now, I'm not sure how you measure it. Um, but it will be very, very interesting to see NBA games played without fans. That's, you know, among the many, many things that are going to be fascinating to watch over the next few months. That's a big one. You know, people talk about the 76ers and they talk about, you know, Simmons can't shoot and does Simmons and Embiid get along? And to me, vastly underreported is the dramatic difference between them home and on the road. 29-2 and two at home. It's the best home record in the NBA and they are a horrific 10 and 24 away from home. And I, for the life of me, cannot figure out how this is going to impact them being on a neutral court, not having to travel, but not having their fans, not having the other team's fans. Yeah. Uh, it just seems they're such a weird team. And now they're put in this weird environment that I don't know which, I don't know what it's going to do to them. That is an excellent point. Um, you know, we just talked about teams feeding off of crowds. I think Joel Embiid is a guy who clearly feeds off that. 76ers home crowd, and now I'm, I'm real tempted after we finish this phone call to go look up his home and road splits, because I imagine there's a pretty big difference there. Um, they have a ton of talent on that team. The, the fit was not great this season, and I think the numbers, I don't think, I know the numbers are quite a bit better when, when Embiid and Simmons play without Orford. In my mind, what I've kind of thought about them is they, they essentially started three centers for a lot of the season. In a lot of ways, to me, Ben Simmons is a point center more than a point guard. Um, so they had a lot of crowding and uh, issues with that lineup that caused them problems, and they were starting to figure that out right before the season shut down. So in terms of talent, I think Philadelphia is still a great team. I wouldn't be surprised to see them come out of the East. But like you just said, without that home crowd to feed off of, um, and if, if that's something that really gets Joel and motivated, maybe that's another team that could be ripe for, for a you know first-round exit. Um they, they could potentially, I think right now they're six. Mm-hmm. So they may have to play the Boston Celtics in the first round. Um, and Boston has kind of had their number over the last couple of years. They beat them in a playoff series a couple of years ago. Joel, Joel Embiid said something like they kick our butts all the time. Um, 
So that that would not be a good first round matchup for them to pull, especially if they don't have the home court to help them out with a few of those games. Well, as always, Andy, we appreciate some of your time. Thanks for checking in with us. You can read more of Andy at Forbes.com. He's also on Bleacher Report. Andy Bailey. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thanks, guys. DJ and PK, that was a big dose of the NBA. You need some college football? Brandon Huffman, national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports, next. Basketball is back. The Zone Sports Network is keeping you up on all the latest news with the Utah Jazz in the NBA. This is a back-to-basketball update. Oh, he never looked at the net. Presented by Zions Bank. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver says he remains pretty confident about the NBA's plan to safely resume play, but admitted a COVID-19 outbreak in the NBA could still bring the league to a halt again. Three New Orleans Pelicans players have tested positive for the coronavirus. Executive Vice President of Basketball Operations David Griffin told reporters Griffin declined to identify the players citing privacy laws, but added they are in isolation, and the positive test came as the players returned to the team facility last week. According to reports, the NBA is considering delays in broadcasts in order to censor out foul language or trash talking that could be caught on microphones without fans in attendance. That's your back-to-basketball update presented by Zines Bank on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. A reminder, the 4th of July weekend will be busy on the road, and ARUP wants... To be ahead of the game, Hans and Scotty G will be at ARUP and Sandy on Thursday. Broadcasting live from 10 to 2, ARUP is open from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. And they'd love to see you there. Visit utahblood.org for all the details. We're joined now by Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, good morning. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Good. You know, as we see you... Uh, as we see the rankings for classes and all that, I'm, I'm curious, with more transfers all the time, more grad transfers all the time, how do you figure that into a recruiting class as you, uh, as you put the rankings out? So it's interesting because, you know, one of the questions that come with grad transfers or with regular transfers, how do you function them into the rankings? And so a lot of it's kind of given the insight by the team that covered it. You know, this is a guy who was really good and he left because of this reason, or this is a guy who was at this school and couldn't play dead, but yet he left and some school needed him. So, you know, you're kind of relying a little bit more on the word on, on the beat writers to, to kind of give you a fair assessment uh, or unfair assessment, what have you, on how that player is going to fit if, you know, when they get to a school, they just all of a sudden aren't as talented or they weren't as good as maybe their high school rating suggested uh, or they were good and just became a victim of circumstance. So it's a lot more teamwork when it comes to that than, say, when you're doing high school ratings. As far as the senior class coming up this year, just looking at stuff that I've seen in the Pac-12, it looks like SC and Oregon are pulling away. Is that true? It is, but I would also say that, you know, there's – 
USC is getting a lot of attention right now because of some good offseason hires they made. And, you know, they're supposed to be a pretty decent team this fall, so we'll see if they can continue that momentum. But for all the scrutiny that Clay Helton has been under really for the last 18 months, it hasn't really been noticeable in their recruiting efforts. But I also think they've done such a good job of adjusting to the lack of ability to get recruits on campus and having a pretty good Southern California recruiting base that you can choose from. So as guys maybe are more hesitant to commit to schools further away because of the pandemic, USC is welcoming those guys into the recruiting class. If there's a season and the season goes as expected, you know, when people think USC will be good, I anticipate that class being stronger. But if the season goes how a lot of USC fans feel probably helping will direct it, that class could allow Oregon to pull away even further and the rest of the Pac-12 to benefit. You know, we've seen the Utes ranked uh, fifth and seventh in the Pac-12, uh, which is an upgrade over the early days in the Pac-12 when they were routinely 9, 10, 11. But we've seen them often outperform whatever the rankings say. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, it's frustrating because every year they make us look stupid with the rankings the way they are, and then a player develops and he gets there and he gets under the coaches at Utah's direction and you know thoroughly outplays his ranking. And I think, A, it, it just speaks to their ability to, A, evaluate, to find these guys when they're 16, 17, 18 years old and say, okay, in three or four years from now, this is what we anticipate this guy playing. I also think Utah does a, as good of a job as anybody as building a lot of depth so they're not necessarily forced to throw in true freshmen to play right away unless that true freshman is you know, just a fantastic player who deserves to be on the field. So it gives them some time to really develop those younger players and play them when they're ready rather than some schools that maybe rush younger guys in and play them before they're ready and then you get back to the ranking. Were they overrated or were they rushed? I think Utah does such a good job with their depth but then evaluating and then developing that depth over their three or four years there, that by the time a guy's a senior, you now see a guy who is a potential draft pick. We, you know, we say it all the time. We'll have a rankings call and we'll look at a kid and we'll say, okay, this is the kind of kid that goes to Utah, ends up a three-time first-team All-Pac-12 guy and ends up drafted. You know, and, and I think you're starting to see in more recent classes, Utah's classes are ranking higher because you cannot argue that the development track record has been. How many big-time four- and five-star studs are still out there uncommitted? There's a lot. You know, it's been interesting, too, because we've seen such a high rate and high number of commitments at this point. I think at one point in mid-January, there were 750 more commitments in mid-June. I'm sorry, in June. In mid-June of 2020, there were 750 more commitments than there were a year ago at this time. So a lot more players are committing two schools essentially to secure their spot, but the higher rated guys, the guys that have all the schools that they really want to choose from after them and are in no rush to get a commitment from them, those guys are taking their time. Maybe they they want to take more official visits. Maybe they want to get out and see these schools a little bit more. I think the players that have more offers that are more highly regarded have more leverage. So a lot of the elite top end guys they are still out there. But you're seeing more of the second, third-tier guys securing their spot at a school or maybe their status with that university isn't as strong 
as an elite prospect. So, you know, it's not uncommon to look in a lot of these states and the number one, two, three player in the state are uncommitted, but then four through ten have committed somewhere. I think there's kind of the feeling of we better secure our spot while we can. But on the other hand, there's the elite guys like, listen, this school's going to take my decision, my commitment in December or February because they want me that bad. Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports, joining us. Uh, we're seeing more players transfer, and we know the rules around transferring could change here uh, in a little while. And because of the coronavirus, we're seeing fewer on-campus visits. We're not seeing coaches fly across the country to visit. Everything's being done by Zoom. Do you think that's going to lead to more transfers, and we really need to take this recruiting class with a grain of salt? Yeah, you know, I, I got married well before any dating apps appeared, so I don't know if you swipe left or you swipe right on those things, but I think there's going to be a lot more uh, just come-to-Jesus moments this fall when schools get a chance to really see the guys that maybe they took commitments from, and on the flip side, recruits maybe go to the campus or talk to the coaches that they committed to. There might be more swiping the other way and maybe some mutual parting of ways. And in fact, I anticipate there being a lot of mutual parting of ways. I think we've you know, kind of established with the large amount of early commitments that you're essentially setting yourself up for a huge fall of decommitments. Because as things maybe open up, maybe get more normal with official visits happening, with unofficial visits being permitted once again, I think you might start to see schools and players cool on each other as they realize maybe this isn't as good of a fit. Maybe we rushed into it because we were more concerned about numbers. But the flip side of that is the longer the NCAA shutdown goes on, and if there's still the insistence that there's going to be a December signing period, maybe we have more players still with their original commitment. But then I think to your question, that's where you start to see the rapid amount of transfers because if guys are still having to make commitments to school sight unseen, and now you take away the opportunity for them in the fall to go take an official visit, maybe there's some coaching changes at school, but guys are still more worried about losing their spot at a school. Once they get there is when they now experience, this is when I should have broke up with this school. So I think we're not only heading to a large amount of decommitments, but I still think even if we do have a large amount of decommitments, we're heading towards a large amount of transfers in that first two years, especially in year one. And I think the transfer portal is going to be very, very busy early on in 2021 and in 2022, just because this is such an unusual, you know, really time that we're dealing with in recruiting. Who's got some of the better quarterbacks committed in the West? Well, Utah is a school that I like their quarterback. I really like Peter Castelli. He's a guy that, you know, continue to keep an eye on. You know, there's not the elite quarterbacks like there were a year ago when you had DJ Uyunglele and Bryce Young, but there's a good batch, kind of that next batch of guys out West. Washington's got Sam Heward. Uh, he's the number one pro style quarterback in the country. Ty Thompson uh, is like the number five dual threat guy. Like he's continuing to a rapid ascent up at the Elite 11 uh, down there in, in Nashville this week. Uh, he's committed to Oregon. Um, USC actually has two quarterbacks committed, Jake Garcia and Miller Moss. They're the number five and number six players in the state of California, respectively. I don't anticipate Jake Garcia sticks with that commitment. He committed to USC a year ago when Bryce Young flipped from USC to Alabama, but then with the addition of Miller Moss, that makes Jake Garcia a little more uh, desirable from a lot of schools, for a lot of schools that are trying to flip him. Uh, 
you got Cal went to Arizona again. Cal's had quite a bit of success the last years in Arizona with Kyle Milner. Um, you know, Colorado is, I think, the only Pac-12 school that, that's yet to land a quarterback just yet, but every other Pac-12 school has one. In some cases, there's two. Uh, it's not as strong of a quarterback class, and you know, one of the things that college coaches love in the spring is the ability to go out and watch players throw and to be able to get to see these quarterbacks throw and see if they fit best with their program without there being the spring evaluation period. A number of schools lost the ability to have that opportunity because they were waiting until the spring instead of maybe watching guys throw in January. So there's going to probably be some a little more jostling than normal with quarterbacks down the stretch as guys emerge in their senior season. So for the first time in quite a bit of years, the senior season will once again matter in recruiting and especially for quarterbacks. Utes uh, get a verbal commitment from Ricky Parks out of uh, Tampa, and in a year when traveling to see places and to, and to go see the players is hard. How did they get a guy cross country in this situation? What made him want to go to Utah? Well, I think that just kind of speaks to the track record that Utah has had in the state of Florida in the last few years. Uh, obviously, with, with uh, the players that they had last year with Tyler Huntley and Zach Moss, I mean, it's becoming one of those programs that. It speaks largely into the state of Florida, and kids know that if they want to get out of the SEC and out of the ACC, they have an opportunity to go west to a program that would love to have a pipeline into the state of Florida. And I think you look at, you know, not just the, the schools that, you know, Utah had to, to beat, but, you know, really who was recruiting him significant wins. I mean, to go in and beat a Florida State with a new coaching staff, and obviously Florida State is long flourish with recruiting in-state guys. They beat a Florida State. There's a number of SEC schools that come to him. Iowa, which has had a great track record of running backs over the last 10, 15 years, they wanted him badly. You had Penn State going down there. So you look at it. wasn't just Southern schools recruiting him. It was a lot of national schools. But Utah has had such a good run in the state of Florida, and I think Kellen Donald has really used that to his advantage in recruiting in the state of Florida. And they're still in the mix. They're still on the short list for a couple of the West top running backs, like Byron Cardwell out of San Diego, who's got Utah in his top three. Jordan Hornbeek out of Fresno, who's got Utah in his top four. So they may not be done kind of spanning the country for top running backs. And in a year where I said the quarterback depth wasn't that great, it's even harder to find a really good running back. And Utah's got an opportunity to go down south and go west and get top backs from both of those regions and add them to their arsenal. Who are some of the top high school players in Utah? Well, I think the big one that, that everybody's been kind of familiar with for the last few years is you've seen Orem really start to emerge as a just a real producer talent. is King Lee Sumatari out of Orem. Uh, 6'5", 280 offensive tackles, already been selected to play in the All-American Bowl in San Antonio. Uh, he's headed to the Polynesian Bowl. You know, he's kind of the, the, the class of the state, and he's been the number one player in the state really since the very first inaugural rankings about two and a half years ago. And, you know, coming after Noah Sewell and and after Pukunakua the last two years out of Orem, he's been kind of the main guy. But there's been other guys that have emerged. You know, Jackson Light, an offensive lineman, a center out of Corner Canyon, who is probably the best center in the West and among the top centers in the country. He's headed to the Under Armour game, committed to the University of Oregon. Uh, at Salt Lake City East, you got Boy Tanuki, who's headed to the University of Washington. You know, one of the most versatile athletes in the state is rated the Mooney out of Tempview, uh, BYU Command. And then you got two of the best jumbo athletes 
really in the West region and Logan Fano out of Tintview uh, and then Isaac Baja out of Pleasant Grove. Baja 6'7", 230. He's got BYU and Utah as his top two schools, but he's got a number of Pac-12, Big 12 schools after him. And Logan Fano is really down to Utah and Washington at this point. Uh, an elite pass rusher, another Polynesian Bowl selection. So you've got some guys up front, uh, but then you got a guy like Raider Damuni who can play a number of spots in the secondary. You just He's one of those guys to get on the field and let him kind of turn loose. And then probably one of my favorite players to watch in the state of Utah. I got a chance to see him at the All-American Combine in San Antonio uh, in January. And then at the Under Armour Combine in February is Viliami Poha out of Bingham, whose father is Tune Poha, the coach at, defensive line coach at Utah. He's already committed to the youth, and I really like him. Maybe doesn't get the attention as some of the other top guys in the state, but a player that I love that early commitment to Utah and a player that I think is going to really flourish in college again. He's one of those guys that develops, gets bigger, gets stronger, gets more physical, and just develops into an elite Pac-12 type guy by his sophomore, junior, senior season. Brandon Huffman, national recruiting editor for uh, 24-7 Sports, joining us here on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. As you talk to the folks around high school football around the country and as all the people on your staff do, are we going to see high school football in every state? Some states, no states. How optimistic are you about a high school football season? You know, I'm optimistic that there will be a season. I'm not optimistic it'll be in the fall. You know, there's a, there's discussions that the state of Florida today is going to be talking about moving football season to the spring. California, I think they set mid-July as kind of their deadline to make that decision if they're going to play it in the fall or if that moves to January or maybe it moves to March. You know, there's other states in the, in the country, and I think what you're going to see is like we did with the NCAA tournament uh, when the conference tournaments were canceled, you need kind of a big conference to make that move for the other conference move. I think in the same boat, you're going to need one of the bigger high schools, the Texas, the Florida, the Georgia, the Californias, to be the first one to make that move. And once they do, I anticipate the trickle-down effect will happen. But I would say two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was more optimistic there would be a football season in the traditional fall now I'm becoming less optimistic just talking to high school coaches, even talking to some college coaches. Even they're starting to worry that their seasons are going to be a pushback. Maybe they go to a conference-only schedule. Maybe they go to a you know a shortened season that starts in January. There will be football. It just may be a little bit longer till we actually see it. I think high school, though, puts itself in the, the highest risk because of the liability with minors. And, and I would say that there's a better chance we see the high school season and moved in sooner rather than later than we do with the colleges and the pros. He's Brandon Huffman, covers uh, recruiting. He's the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, we appreciate you coming on and sharing a few minutes with our listeners. Thanks a lot. Glad we can talk, guys. DJ and PK brought to you in part by Larry H. Miller, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, and Sandy. Find your deals online at LHMDeals.com. You had a thought there, PK? Yeah, there's no question, Sniggy. He was talking about jumbo athletes. I kind of view you as a jumbo talk show host. I'm really sorry I didn't just go to break because I thought about it. <laughs> uh, well, we all make mistakes in this life. How's that? You take that as negative. Twenty. No, jumbo. He meant you could do a lot of different things, buddy. That was a compliment. You owe me an apology. Well, he was talking about guys who were 6'7", 280, and you know I'm not 6'7", so I figured you're making a 280 joke. 
No, it was the ability to be a jumbo. <laughs> jumbo! Jumbo! <laughs> all right, DJ and PK, your feedback coming up next. And it's all over almost here. Don't go nowhere. Time for your feedback. Brought to you by Audi Salt Lake City. We're going to pick up a new Audi Q5 SUV for only $359 per month. Visit Audi Salt Lake City at 999 South State or com. All right, PK, earlier this morning you were talking about uh, how long the coronavirus will be with us and how much do we just have to adapt and learn how to live with it because it's not going away. So how do you adapt? How do you be smart and, you know, reclaim as much of your life as possible? And we were talking about, uh, and there's just no way this was an accident. The Goldman Sachs came out with a study that said masks are worth a trillion dollars to the U.S. economy. Goldman Sachs. And when I think Goldman Sachs, and Yacht jumped right in, I think money. So masks are now all of a sudden all over our uh, Twitter page. And I wasn't looking at it because... You know, we had these interviews and we were talking to Andy Bailey and Brandon Huffman and that. And we had uh, Joe Ingles press conference. But uh, Alexander Lyman has tweeted at us with DJ and PK theme masks. Remember the T-shirts we had? Yeah, I do. DJ and PK, for those about to talk. Well, he's got the mask version of the T-shirt up. His company did those shirts originally. And, and Yach, how many different patterns does he have now? Like three? There's, I think, eight different styles. Oh, really? Of different, like, just looking at the different versions of the masks. And it's a pretty impressive look. All right. Get ready. DJ and PK mask coming your way uh, soon. Jake's already tweeting back at him. There's a whole conversation going on you and I didn't even know about. <laughs> we will flood the market hey, I've got with one, our initials. I've got one of those shirts, and I love it. So having a mask <laughs> would be even better. Oh, man. Uh, DJ and PK, I feel your daily public guessing on what will happen to Coach Scally is so unprofessional. I'm not sure if your ratings are dropping or why you're pulling a CNN take, but you know nothing. The rest of us as listeners know nothing. Let's wait it out. Well, it's not daily, for starters. And know nothing? PK, do you think you know nothing? I think you know something. Yeah, I know nothing. I ah, don't know anything. Do I, it's amazing how I've had this media <laughs> thing going on for three decades. I don't know anything. Uh, you might have texted somebody who knows something. <laughs> I know. It, it, uh, all I the stuff will be out in time. We'll, we'll, we'll know soon enough the yeah. actual uh, the final uh, results, I guess, and what the verdict is, if you can call it that. But, you know, that's what the dial is there before, buddy. If you don't like the topic. There are buttons go that can get, be pushed. Yeah, I would advise you to go turn to another local sports radio show in the morning. <laughs> I see what you did there. Very clever. <laughs> yeah, that's a creepy <laughs> laugh right there. <laughs> Yuck. You got to see the face Yuck is making. <laughs> Let's not do that one again. PK just creeped you out. <laughs> this is why no one should listen to them. No one, Ryan says. Okay. No one. Thanks for tuning in anyways. Uh, You got any feedback you want to pass along to the people? Yeah. DJ and PK are the greatest morning show that's ever existed. That comes from Bob. Thanks, Bob. (laughs) We're lucky to have them. They are treasures. Is Bob real or are you making Bob up? The second one from Frank. No, there's Bob's. There's bobs everywhere, man. Okay, fine. (laughs) 
I'm not Manti Teo over here. Hey, now. Nice. Hey, where's Lene Kakua when we need her? <laughs> Lene Kakua. Not thought of Lene Kakua in a while. All right, DJ and PK, on that note, we'll give Manti Teo the last shout-out of the show. Hans and Scotty are coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow, 6 to 10 on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.